Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Vatsur. Join us on Wednesday, December 20th, at San Francisco's historic Castro Theater for the 8th annual Noir City Xmas, as the Film Noir Foundation offers a double feature of rare noir-stained 1940s Yuletide films, Manhandled, starring Dan Durier, Dorothy Lamour, and Sterling Hayden, and Alias Boston Blackie, starring Chester Morris. As always, Noir City co-programmer and FNF Prez, Eddie Muller, will be your Noir Noel host. The evening will also feature the unveiling of the full schedule and poster for Noir City 16, the world's most popular film noir festival, returning to the Castro Theater January 26th to February 4th, 2018. And for your holiday shopping pleasure, Noir City 16 passports, all-access festival passes, will be available for sale at Noir City Xmas, or you can purchase your Noir City Festival passports now online at brownpapertickets.com. And now, let's talk to our guest for this month. Joining us now is Alan K. Rohde, a charter director and treasurer of the Film Noir Foundation. His new book, Michael Curtiz, A Life in Film, is available now, published by the University Press of Kentucky, which is headquartered in my hometown, Lexington, Kentucky. Alan, you've joined us here recently for some momentous occasions, the 100th birthday of the great Marsha Hunt a couple months ago, and now the publication of your book, which has been seven years in the making, if I understand correctly. That is correct, and uh, Guy, thank you for having me on Noir Talk. It's always good to be with you, and yeah, I'm very gratified that Michael Curtiz's uh, A Life in Film has been published, and it's, it's doing well, and I have uh, a number of events uh, that I've already done and then are lined up for uh, the first part of 2018, so uh, I'm very excited about the reception uh, for the book, and I'm glad I'm here to talk to you about it. Well, it's a great book, and I think it's been well worth the wait. It's uh, terrifically well-researched. All the details are incredible, and the, the narrative you weave together of his whole life and his whole career is, is really fascinating, and I think explains a lot about one of the greatest Hollywood directors who, uh, as we'll talk about later, is strangely not nearly as highly regarded as he should be, but perhaps now he will be. Yeah, well, he, was, uh, he certainly was an interesting and colorful person to write about, and he was never boring. And um, uh, a lot of it was exploring a lot of anecdotes because his, his er, particularly his early life and even his life in Hollywood really was never examined from a scholarly or, uh, should I say, a real accurate point of view. It was characterized by uh, snippets from Luella Parsons and studio publicity releases and then this whole colorful image that he created of the uh, the Hungarian director in Jodhpurs that spoke with a pound and a half of broken English. And where a lot of those anecdotes were either accurate or could have been accurate, there was obviously much, much more to his career and his life uh, than had been previously uh, documented. So starting a little bit at the very beginning, 
you talk about his early life in your book. So Curtiz was born in Budapest in late December of 1886 under a different name. He was Emmanuel Kaminer originally. And as you write about, he frequently lied about his age in later years in the U.S. But one detail I really liked is you found a certificate um, in the arch- one of the archives there that indicated the date of his circumcision. So that was very precise about when he was born, because you're not going to yeah. forge that date. <laughs> so. I guess I guess that's figuratively called uh, turning every page, <laughs> as the great biographer Robert Caro termed it in doing your research. But actually, it wasn't that difficult, because the Grand Synagogue in Budapest recorded the, the birth of uh, many of the Jewish citizens during the Austro-Hungarian Empire days. And Curtis was born on Christmas Eve, 1886, uh, and uh, it was it was comparatively easy to find that, uh, and that exploded as you outlined the myth of his his varying ages of birth. In fact, his wife uh, Bess Meredith, the great Hollywood uh, scenarist that he was married to for thirty years, uh, in the mid 1930s, Curtis apparently fictionalized his age on a passport application. And she noted that although she was three years or so younger than him, now she appeared older than her husband and mentioned that to him. And he just shrugged and said, well, why don't you lie like I am? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that was his attitude. But, yeah, it was very helpful uh, regarding Curtis's early life. I have a, uh, a friend and colleague in Budapest named Laszlo Kristen who is a noted uh, uh, film writer, reports on film festivals, and so forth. And he was very, very helpful to me, not only in ferreting out uh, details such as that and pointing me in the direction of certain archives and so forth, but uh, he also helped facilitate a visit that I made to Budapest for research. uh, And in addition, went through many, many early movie magazines because Budapest and and Hungary had a very lively movie scene uh, both before and during World War I. And Curtiz was very, very actively involved in that. So it was really startling to come across magazines articles written by then Michael Curtiz uh, about the auteur theory in like 1915, <laughs> a long time before Andrew Serres. And as you write about, he was, and this this was these details were all new to me. Curtiz was a pioneer of silent film in every sense of the word. He directed the first ever um, dramatic film that was produced in Hungary in 1912, called Today and Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that was even before going back this far. That was before even Charlie Chaplin had ever appeared in a movie. So talk about someone who was there at the beginning. Oh, he was there at the very beginning. In fact, I described when he was originally a classically trained actor. And he went to the Royal Academy uh, of Theater and Art and graduated in Budapest in 1906. And in those days... Acting was treated as a profession that you had to be certified for, like uh, a doctor or a dentist. And so you had to graduate from the Royal Academy of Theater and Art. It was a very rigorous uh, competition. So he was an actor, but he, he always felt that his ability as an actor and his opportunities to express his artistic vision were very limited. And he graduated on stage to uh, staging and direction. 
but he saw the earliest silent films by the Mealy's brothers around the turn of the century in City Park in Budapest, and actually wrote about this about 10 to 15 years later when he was uh, directing films. So he was there at the very beginning. And when you consider the arc of Curtiz's career, uh, starting out at the earliest part of uh, uh, film coming into existence and then going through uh, making epics in Europe, European cinema, coming to Warner Brothers in 1926, silent movies, then sound, then two-strip Technicolor, full Technicolor, and then he shot the first film in VistaVision, White Christmas, in 1954. I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. But my point is is that he was one of the more significant cinema pioneers whose career spanned a, a good part of the 20th century. Yeah, he was there every step of the way as changes were happening in, in the movie industry, both in Europe and in the U.S. And you mentioned there in the some of the silent films he did in the 1920s, as you write about, he directed some massive epics in Europe, um, in Austria, I think, in the in the 20s, as you detail. Uh, some of them were biblical epics, Sodom and Gomorrah, and then The Moon of Israel was another big hit for him, which brought him to the attention of the Warner Brothers. Exactly. And and he, he got this reputation with those films. Uh, his reputation was... Um, directing these huge epics with thousands of people and costumes and large groups of people. Remember, this was an era way, way, way before CGI. Uh, so he would have, in Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, I think they had 15,000 extras. Uh, and at that time, uh, his producer was a, a very interesting gentleman by the name of Count Kolorat, who founded Sasha Films in Austria and was more or less Cortese's sponsor and had him directing these epics. And uh, it's just the incredible amount of money, scope, uh, a couple of these films. Uh, Curtiz was, in effect, running an employment agency for post-World War I Vienna with the amount of people he was directing. And this is also where he got his reputation for quote-unquote realism, which meant uh, if someone had to fall off a railing and fall down, well, that's what they had to do, or... Later on in Hollywood, if a cowboy had to fall off his horse into a bunch of cactus, well, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> so he, he developed that reputation by, as you pointed out, directing these sweeping, uh, usually uh, moneyed epics in Europe. And in fact, Moon of Israel was definitely on a par with DeMille's Ten Commandments. And it was seen as such a rival that Adolf Zucker at Famous Players Lasky, later to become Paramount Pictures, uh, he bought the American rights to Moon of Israel and promptly locked all the film up in his vault so it would not compete with Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. And uh, another film, as you write about, that Curtis had wanted to do for a number of years, and then he eventually got the chance to do it in Hollywood, was Noah's Ark, where he was hoping that he would be able to do that the first movie he as the first movie uh when he came to warner brothers but they delayed for a couple of years gave him some smaller films first and it ended up as you write about being somewhat successful not the huge hit they were hoping for and uh a quote you have from one of the reviewers or authors at the time was very entertaining he said uh he said they took a book that's been a hit for 1900 years and made a flop out of it <laughs> yeah yeah that was uh, uh some friend of xanax because uh when Curtis came to Warner Brothers in 1926, Zanuck was also beginning his rise 
and was most notably known for uh, writing the Rin Tin Tin pictures, which really kept Warner Brothers viable when they were just, you know, one of several studios kind of struggling to survival and to leave their mark in Hollywood. And this was when the corporate money from Wall Street was starting to come into the movie business at that time. But, uh, yeah, Curtiz came to America ostensibly to film this epic film. Uh, Harry Warner saw him on a, on a film set in Paris. Uh, he went back. He and Jack looked, got, a, got a hold of that buried print of Moon of Israel. And Jack Warner put it, we were laid in the aisles, and Harry said, we've got to get this man to Hollywood. And so they did. So Curtiz arrived in Hollywood in June of 1926. And, of course, there's this fabulous story that's been in all manner of publicity re releases and people's memoirs that he pulled into New York on July 4th on an ocean liner with all these fireworks and everything going off, celebrating the 4th of July. And Curtiz was moved to tears and told Harry Warner, you did all this just for my arrival. <laughs> Which, of course, this is a, a uh, publicity man's dream that was parroted by Jack Warner and how many other people, including Curtiz himself. He actually arrived at June, on June 26th and was shortly there in Hollywood, and there were no fireworks or parades for his arrival. He arrived with the scenario of Noah's Ark, this biblical epic under his arm, and he encountered Jack Warner at Warner Brothers Studio having the kinks worked out on a massage table. And Jack said, we're not going to do this. We're going to make a you're going to make American crime film, the third degree. <laughs> and and Curtiz was like thunderstruck. And he knew nothing about uh, American jurisprudence or American criminal procedures. He couldn't speak English. He couldn't read the script. But he also knew that his entire career depended on making this first film a success. So he, with the assistance of one of the undersheriffs in Los Angeles County, he spent two weeks at the L.A. County Jail watching fingerprinting, processing, so forth. And he ended up making a very, very notable movie that was half a criminal picture, but one of the principals in the movie was married to a circus performer. So Curtiz decided to take all of this, shoot all this footage of people diving off of high boards and trapeze artists and turn it into a circus picture as well. <laughs> and, and he was on his way after that. And one of the people he worked with on those very first movies, one of the script writers was, as you mentioned, uh, Bess Meredith, who ended up becoming uh, his wife. And they were married for many decades. And she was an extremely successful writer in the silent era. And uh, she was covered a couple months ago on the Turner Classic Movies Trailblazing Women series. They did an episode about her and her work on the silent version of Ben Hurt from 1925. So she was instrumental for the rest of his career in working with him on scripts and story construction and those kinds of things that were not necessarily his biggest strength, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the, one of the themes that, that runs through my book is the partnership between Curtiz and his wife, Bess Meredith, that he married in 1929. And they stayed together until shortly before his death. I believe they separated in 1960. Uh, as the book, uh, goes into in a lot of detail is their marriage was hardly uh, something that was conventional. Uh, it was more of a partnership. And when Curtiz arrived in Hollywood, Bess was riding high. She had started out in DW with DW Griffiths. She had her own series of films. Uh, she was married to an actor, went to Australia, made films there, came back, got divorced. 
So when she met Curtiz, uh, I believe they met on the set of Don Juan in 1926, and then as you, you described, she subsequently wrote the scenario for his first film, The Third Degree, and then wrote the scenario for Noah's Ark and was involved in that. Uh, they, he was nobody, and she was pretty close to Hollywood royalty and was a charter member of the Motion Picture Academy. So she really smoothed the way for his entry into the elite of Hollywood. She counseled him on studio politics and helped him master English to the degree that he could as far as reading and writing. His, his pronunciation never quite caught up with his knowledge of English, I have to say. But most importantly, she worked with him on all his scripts. And, uh, for example, when he was shooting Casablanca, um, Julius Epstein, one of the screenwriters, recalled uh, what it was like during the story interviews, and Curtis showed up one time, and he started to say something, and he said, oh, I forgot what Fesky told me. I have to go back and talk to her. She, his career would have been very, very different without his marriage to Bess Meredith, and uh, it's a very, very interesting aspect of his life. Curtiz's uh, first really big breakthrough in Hollywood on a bigger budget movie that ended up becoming a major hit was in 1935 with Captain Blood, which also was a very significant instance of Curtiz's career-long reputation as someone who was a developer of new movie stars, in this case, the leading man, Harold <laughs> Flynn. Absolutely, and and Captain Blood was really, Curtiz was was kind of a, uh, General Foreman at Warner Brothers cranking out movie after movie after movie to keep the assembly line moving that fed films into Warner Theaters. And he really wanted a breakout big picture. He needed that. In fact, he remarked to his stepson, John Meredith Lucas, who is best Meredith's son by her first marriage. And, and John Meredith, of course, went on to a distinguished career in production, direction, and writing with uh, Ben Casey in the original Star Trek episodes and many, many other things, but uh, had an interesting early life growing up with Curtiz as, as a stepfather who was hardly the classical stepfather. But uh, Curtiz told him, he said, you know, if I don't follow my own head, I'm going to be a shoe shiner here at Warner Brothers. So uh, Captain Blood was uh, rather a serendipitous type of um, convergence of different things the the warner brothers had had a serious fire and they rebuilt the studio and put in more modern sound stages uh production management techniques and so forth really streamlined the studio and recovering from that also by this time hal wallace had supplanted uh daryl zanuck as head of production for warner brothers and Daryl Zanuck had gotten into a quarrel with Harry Warner over money and, and policy and had left and went to uh, founded 20th Century, which later became 20th Century Fox. So um, 
this was Hal Wallace's first big film, and it was in keeping with uh, a trend in Hollywood with films such as The Count of Monte Cristo and so forth. And they needed, Warner Brothers needed a new face. Uh, they originally uh, hired Robert Donat, and Donat had health problems. Uh, he opted out at the last minute, and they really didn't have anybody, but Errol Flynn had been brought over from England, and it's kind of interesting when you have a success in Hollywood afterwards, there's a long queue that forms with everyone trying to take credit for uh, discovering this person or writing this script. And you see this researching films like Casablanca and Captain Blood. And in the case of Captain Blood, it was, well, who discovered really, who discovered Errol Flynn and put him in this great movie? And it was really, actually, it was really uh, Jack Warner who was the proponent who really wanted to give him a shot. Uh, in doing my research through all of the archival documents. But nevertheless, uh, Curtiz got a great performance out of him. It was one of the first great swashbuckling movies. In addition, it formed the cinematic relationship between Errol Flynn and his co-star Olivia de Havilland. Uh, so it, it, it spawned a whole new genre of films. It established Errol Flynn as a major movie star and it established Michael Curtiz as a director of swashbuckling, great American epic-type entertaining films. And there are a lot of stories from that movie and then the number of films they did together, almost a dozen between Curtiz and Flynn, and many of them with Olivia de Havilland as well, where a lot of the stories started coming out around then of Curtiz's style with actors, that he could be very tyrannical and in some cases very cruel as de Havilland was always uncomfortable around him, and according to her accounts. Yeah, well, Curtiz was a martinet. There's no doubt about that. And, and his, you know, a lot of people have described him as a sadist. Uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily go along with that. I think a sadist is someone who takes pleasure in, in afflicting pain. And what he did, he, as, as, uh, he wasn't a shrinking violet. He had a very short fuse, and he would get impatient and blow up on people. And he also followed the old school initially of European directors who believed that actors needed to be reduced to putty or dangled like marionettes in the director's hands. And that might have been okay in Europe during World War One and into the 20s, but it didn't work so much in Hollywood. And he and Flynn got off to a really bad start because he broke them down and Flynn was an inexperienced actor and would get nervous and clinch his teeth, and Curtiz was really tough on him to extract the performance from him. So in the short run, it worked really well because it made Errol Flynn a star. In the long run, uh, it destroyed any hope of a collegial relationship between Errol Flynn and Curtiz. Curtiz would also, to vent pressure, he would pick on people uh, they couldn't really fight back like bid actors and particularly sound sound gaffers sound the sound men because when he was directing silence and sound came in he had to, he had to cede the control of his set for a time to these sound guys from western electric as he called them the sound bumps uh and he would use the sound people and bid actors as verbal pinatas so this didn't go over well with errol flynn uh, olivia de Havilland. Uh, didn't like it either. I think she described Curtiz at one point as a Hungarian Otto Preminger, which kind of sums up her opinion of him. And, and in addition, Olivia 
was cast in a series of movies uh, where she played a adoring consort to Errol Flynn, and this was not what the the arc of her career that she wanted to follow. She wanted to do meaningful work, and really her, her quarrel was more with Jack Warner based on uh, compensation and the films that he put her in, because the at that time artists directors had very little say you had to do what you were told and you had to appear in the pictures that they told you to do so that was all part of it on Flynn's part he felt after a while that that his his acting in movies such as Captain Blood the Seahawk and the Adventures of Robin Hood that he was being turned into kind of a juvenile cartoon character uh, that, that didn't have any value, that didn't have any worth. And it's really ironic because when you see these films today, who could have played Robin Hood, with all due respect to Douglas Fairbanks Sr. in 1922, but who could have played Robin Hood any better than Errol Flynn uh, or the Seahawk in these pictures? He was absolutely magnificent, uh, eye-catching, and, and his, his work holds up. But at the time, he just thought that he was being cast in a bunch of frivolous movies and was not being taken seriously. And I think that added fire to the, the, the very difficult relationship he had with Mike Curtiz. They are really brilliant movies that hold up so beautifully. Adventures of Robin Hood and The Seahawk, as you mentioned, just magnificent work. Absolutely. You know, the, the Adventures of Robin Hood, I'm convinced people will be looking at that 100 years from now and enjoying it. The movie is set in an age where it's about really a legend. So the movie is impossible to, it doesn't date at all. There's, there's nothing contemporary in it from 1937, 1938, where you go, Oh, this, this looks old. It looks, the color is beautiful. The score by, uh, uh, by Korngold is one of the most brilliant scores. As far as I'm concerned in the history of motion pictures, Everything is wonderfully cast. Uh, uh, Alan Hale, Olivia de Havilland. It's just a brilliant, brilliant piece of entertainment that doesn't date at all. As you mentioned, it's hard to imagine a better Robin Hood than Errol Flynn, and I think certainly hard to imagine a better Maid Marian than uh, Olivia de Havilland. She was wonderful. There was real sexual chemistry between the two of those. And I think Curtiz and Wallace caught on to it late in the production of, uh, you know, it's there in Captain Blood, but it really reaches full flower in, in Robin Hood. And, and it was very, very unique. And at some point, Curtiz and probably Hal Wallace really played it up in Robin Hood. And it's, you can see it right there in the screen. And uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, the great composer, as you mentioned, uh, for me, and those scores that he did, especially for these Curtiz films, for me, it's, he's always seemed to be the closest Hollywood ever got to if there was somehow a time machine where you could bring Mozart into the 20th century. And if he was composing film scores, and the closest we ever got to that was Korngold. It's really beautiful music. Oh, Korngold was a, Korngold was a genius. He was one of the world's greatest uh, prodigies. He was a very... He was a, a composer who, who was a child prodigy, very similar to Mozart. And uh, ironically, he didn't think that he could compose the score to Robin Hood. And his son remembers uh, listening through the wall from his parents' bedroom and hearing his father saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. And, and, and uh, you know, he said, my father was suffering, even though he ended up composing one of his finest scores. And in fact, originally, Korngold declined to do the score, but 
due to politics, he was um, came over from Austria and was here during the Anschluss and needed to keep his family here and so forth. So, you know, he did what he had to do, and it ended up being one of the most brilliant scorers in the history of motion pictures. Let's talk briefly about a couple of the movies that Curtiz is most famous for uh, in the early 1940s, Yankee Doodle Dandy and Casablanca. And these are movies where the chapters that you wrote uh, about them in your book, Alan, there are excerpts of those chapters available on the web. We have links to those in the podcast notes. There's an article you wrote for Yankee Doodle Dandy on the Classic Movie Hub website, and then another one excerpt from your Casablanca chapter on your website. So the links are there in the notes. And for Yankee Doodle Dandy, uh, what struck me in reading your description of that is, is um, as Curtiz worked with James Cagney, whom he'd worked with several times before, and also extremely successfully on Angels with Dirty Faces, the great gangster movie from the late 30s. I think the the thing about Cagney that matched Curtiz so well, it seems to me, as you write about, is Cagney had this great physical energy and dynamism, and he was always working hard on set on camera, just doing things, giving stuff to the audience. And he was working a lot um, also on the script and the scenes. He was mm, suggesting changes, but never things that would just improve his own profile. He was always working really hard to improve the movie. And as you write about, that's what Curtiz really responded to. And that's the kind of actor that he really liked to work with. Yeah, it's very interesting that Curtiz was very responsive. Uh, he he you saw him change from the directorial martinet to a very, very collaborative director when he worked with people like Cagney and Joan Crawford and others that were less interested in their stardom or realized that their stardom would rise by making the picture better. And in the case of Cagney, um, Cagney late in life was interviewed and was asked about critiques, and he said, Mike was a pompous bastard who didn't know how to treat actors, but he sure as hell knew how to treat a camera. <laughs> and uh, with with Cagney, uh, particularly on Yankee Doodle Dandy, uh, where Cagney's younger brother Bill was the associate producer under Hal Wallace, uh, Cagney had gone through a series of suspensions with Jack Warner, and Warner always caved and, and had him come back to the studio uh, because Cagney was such a popular star and his pictures made so much money. So by the time Yankee Doodle Dandy was being made in late 1941, Cagney had an extraordinary contract with Warner Brothers that gave him a great deal of authority for an actor at that time. He's, his contract actually had a happiness clause, as it was called, where he could leave if he was dissatisfied with anything. And uh, Cagney's relationship with Jack Warner uh, could be uh, termed as a very visceral dislike <laughs> by both parties, and it was a, their relationship was a marriage of of financial necessity, as it were. So when it came to making Yankee Doodle Dandy, uh, Warner and Wallace 
really micromanaged all of their pictures. Uh, Warner constantly harangued Curtiz and the other directors about schedule and hurry up and let's get going and you're taking too long and why do we have to do this? And Wallace wanted to put his own personal stamp on everything and tried to run the picture from his office. But in the case of Yankee Doodle Dandy, because of Cagney's power through his contract, at a certain point they had to back off because they were afraid Cagney was going to leave the studio, which he did after the picture was completed. So Curtiz was in a really great situation. He had James Cagney. He had a great script by Robert Buckner and the... um, the Epstein brothers who put all of the humor into it. And Curtiz was very, very patriotic. Uh, he wore his patriotism on a sleeve, on his sleeve because he, he not only came, you know, he grew up under a divine monarch, uh, a lot of anti-Semitism, the, the disaster of world war one with the Austro-Hungarian empire being, uh, broken up. And he had to literally get out of Hungary in 1919 when the communists took over and people were being arrested and lined up, you know, lined up against the wall and being shot. And then of course, uh, the specter of Nazism and Curtis ended up getting two of his brothers and his mother, uh, out of Europe, uh, before the Nazis, uh, took over Hungary. So, uh, there was a lot to this. And I have to say he, he described the Yankee doodle dandy as the pinochle of my career and his typical mangled syntax, but it was his happiest experience in Warner Brothers, in my opinion. It does hold up really beautifully, even though it's very sentimental <laughs> for the most part. But it's, oh yeah, it's yeah. Really I terrific. mean, the, the 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 patriotism in it, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily date really well, um, particularly in the times we're in now. However. Cagney's energy and talent and the dancing and singing, I think, is really timeless. And it's, it's, uh, it's great entertainment. And, of course, it was a huge success at Warner Brothers because the day, product, the day production started was December 8, 1941, and Pearl Harbor had been bombed on that Sunday. And Monday they started shooting, uh, shooting the film, and as... Curtiz and Cagney walked into the soundstage for the first take. Uh, Walter Houston and Joan Leslie and the other cast members were standing around listening to President Roosevelt address Congress and, and asking for a declaration of war against Japan. So it, 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 from the timing of the film uh, and everything else involved in it, it was a special movie at that time. And the... Uh momentous times of World War II and international upheaval then led into Curtiz's most famous and lasting movie, of course, which was Casablanca, which was released in 1943. And for me, I think if we can just, uh, we'll just talk about it pretty briefly. Like we mentioned, we have the uh, article linked to on your website, which is an excerpt from your book about the making of the film. So for me, when I first saw it, uh, when I first saw it back in high school, it really struck me as it's almost like the Hamlet of movies. Because when you first see Hamlet, every five minutes you think, oh, I've heard that before. I've heard that phrase. Oh, that's where that quote came from. Mm -hmm. Very similar with Casablanca. It's just so endlessly quotable, even by people who don't know that the quotes are coming from that film. But as you write about, it's uh, the lasting legacy and the lasting greatness of Casablanca is much more than just the 
the beautiful dialogue and script and performances, there were some really important contributions that Curtiz himself made. In particular, he was in charge of the casting, as you write, of all the bit players in the movie. And so many of them were themselves refugees from Nazi Germany. And they were playing these very desperate refugees in a very similar situation to what they had been. And that's something that people today especially really link onto. I see people online talking about it all the time. Like, wow, these scenes are so powerful because these people were really refugees. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he cast all these people and uh, knew them. Many of them were Jewish, and Dan Seymour, the big, uh, massive character actor who was the doorman uh, in Casablanca, remembered, recalled the uh, uh, Le Massey scene when the whole cafe erupts singing the French national anthem to drown out Conrad Veidt and the Nazis. He noticed that everyone was crying, and it dawned on him, these people are refugees. So... There was a sense of realism and timeliness in Casablanca that can't be can't be overstated. And I tried to tell the story of Casablanca. I mean, here it is. It's 75 years later, and we're we're celebrating the 75th anniversary. And there are tributes and interviews and articles everywhere. And Casablanca was a film that, because of its intangible and historical attributes has been elevated into a realm of popular culture that I think very few movies, if any, uh, have been privileged to occupy. And it's very, very unique. And Curtiz's contributions, in addition to casting uh, all of the uh, uh, smaller parts, he also added his old Hungarian uh, colleague, S.Z. Zakal, who was really named Jacob Garrow and was a Hungarian music hall and comedian entertainer. Uh, as um, uh, Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart's uh, factotum in Rick's Cafe because he knew Zakal would inject his humor, humor into the film. The other thing Curtiz did was significant is that he really wanted to play up the love story with the flashback between Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart because he thought that you know Ingrid Bergman just walking into the cafe with Paul Henry and rekindling this romance that there needed to be context to all of that. So he was very big and insisting uh, that Howard Koch and the Epstein's imbue that in the film and the uh, the flashback sequences and so on and so forth. And when you look at Casablanca, when you get past the as you pointed out the immortal dialogue that's in it. Uh, it's just a beautifully shot film, particularly that entrance scene in Rick's Cafe where there's this long dolly shot of waiters and bustle and cigarette smoke and people in corners trying to sell their ring to get an exit visa to get out and all the little vignettes. And that goes from the smoke curling from Bogart's cigarette into a flashback to the end when Claude Rains hurls the bottle of Vichy water in the trash can <laughs> at the end at the airport. Uh, and I think the other thing that makes Casablanca great, uh, aside from the historical timing and serendipity that goes along with it, it was a picture that everyone involved, uh, Wallace, the writers, the actors, Curtiz, everyone tried to make it as good as it could be to the last possible instant. And there were constant revisions. Uh, the dialogue would come out in the morning, and the actors would say, "Well, what are we going to do?" And Curtiz would say, "Well, let's let's see what let's see what today brings, and we'll think about tomorrow." 
So it was not like a very happy, relaxed set. It was very, very tense uh, because a critique set with his disposition. There was a certain amount of tenseness there anyway. And people really, it, it was, they were, they were rewriting it uh, as they went along. Get out, Vita. Get your things out of this house right now before I throw them into the street and you with them. Get out before I kill you. So let's move on now to the period from the mid 1940s to around 1950 when Curtiz did several great film noir movies. And let's start with Mildred Pierce, the great classic from 1945, where the opening sequence, as you write about, with um, Curtiz and the great cinematographer Ernest Holler. They used shadows just so beautifully in that scene, and it fits so perfectly with the noir style at that time. And the shadows and using those, that was something Curtiz had used going back many, many years. If you go back to any of his earlier films, even in the uh, the Swashbucklers, Robin Hood, and and those films, there were scenes where he really liked the interplay of shadows against surfaces or against the walls. So it seems that once film noir came around, that he fit perfectly into this particular visual style. Yes, and well, Curtiz was a master with the camera, and he was a master with lighting and and doing things with that. And he, I mean, this is this was what he loved to do, and. Uh, you know, it was, Curtiz lent a whole lot to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers lent a whole lot to him. I mean, they had great, great cinematographers, uh, James Wong Howe, Arthur Edison, uh, particularly Saul Polito, who I think made, you know, a dozen films with Curtiz, and they were so simpatico, they kind of communicated with grunts and raised eyebrows and glances, glances on what they wanted to do. So, uh, you know, Mildred Pierce is kind of the quintessential uh, sourness of the American dream. And uh, interestingly, a lot of the reviews at the time were very negative about it because it was uh, it was thought to be too sour, uh, too negative. Um, You know, the the notion of uh, Mildred's daughter having an affair with her husband had a lot of trouble getting it made and you really have to give full marks to the producer jerry wald who was utterly determined over a period of years the script went through a number of revisions and screenwriters and it was probably primarily uh renald mcdougall and an uncredited Catherine turney who always regretted that she could have gotten a credit on the film and her agent said dad don't take a co-credit it's no good for you she said so i gave up my credit on mildred pierce uh and then the whole um, relationship between Joan Crawford and Michael Curtiz, and Joan Crawford, uh, as been chronicled, was, was labeled box office poison at MGM. She came to Warner Brothers at a lower salary. Really, I think she popped up in Hollywood Canteen, really didn't do anything. And, and Mildred Pierce was her last best chance. Uh, to regain her lost luster and her fading stardom, and and it worked, and she won the Oscar, and um, and her relationship with Curtiz, as she put it, he gave me a postgraduate course in humiliation, and then started to teach me, and and Curtiz felt that she was, you know, an, a Tiffany MGM with shoulder pads, and he had to break her down, and he did, 
and he really ended up respecting Crawford because she was doing what was best for the film because she knew what was best for the film was best for her and not arguing over how many close-ups she had and so on and so forth. So it was a very, uh, it ended up being a very fruitful and respectful relationship uh, between Curtiz and Joan Crawford and also Curtiz and Anne Blythe. Uh, who played memorably played Vita, uh, the daughter from hell, and and Anne was nominated for a best uh, uh, Academy Award for best supporting actress in that film, and she and Curtis became lifelong friends. And I remember asking her, "Why did you? Why were you so fond of Mike?" And she said, "Because I always felt he was in my corner," which kind of refutes the fact that that all actors and people who work with Curtis hated him. Just as just as much as the uh, the myth of Curtis only shot the script, uh, I, I found out both of the, both of those aspects of his career and his life were both both myths. It's really striking in your book about Mildred Pierce, where you talk about not just Crawford and Anne Blythe, as you mentioned, but almost all the other leading players or top build actors in that cast, which is a brilliant cast: um, Zachary Scott, Jack Carson, Eve Arden, Bruce Bennett, Lee Patrick all of them who had very successful careers and they were all at or near their best in terms of roles they ever played in Mildred Pierce. They were all at the peak of their performance um, or the peak of their powers. And all of them, as you detail, had nothing but praise for Curtis. They said he was terrific to work with and um, the set was, uh, was a great atmosphere for them. Well, yeah, uh, you have to remember most of those quotes at the time were made for public consumption so, you know, no one's going to come out with a movie they just made that's nominated for Oscar saying, you know, this, this really stunk. I didn't like Curtis and I didn't, you know, so there, there's a certain amount of gilded PRmanship, uh, if you will, with that. And the other thing is, is that Curtis was, he was respected more than he was liked. I think that's safe to say. And I think this was a film where the script was good. The casting was good. Everything, everything worked, so it probably went quite smoothly. Uh, also, uh, Curtis had this unusual relationship with Hal Wallace that evolved through the 1930s, where Wallace uh, would just really lambaste him with these vituperative and often insulting uh, memorandums and try to control Curtis from his office, and Curtis would shoot the film his way, uh, ignore Wallace's dictates, ignore Wallace's cutting notes, and they finally came to a good relationship when Curtiz was was put in in the middle of Robin Hood when the assigned director William Keeley was essentially removed from Wallace by Wallace of the production because the uh, Wallace didn't feel that the picture had the sweep and scope of a great swashbuckling epic that it needed to have and when Robin Hood was uh, such a great success, because of that, uh, Curtiz and Hal Wallace became very, very close, both professionally and personally. But by the time of Mildred Pierce, Wallace had had his set to with Jack Warner, had left the studio in 1944, and had set up his own independent production company at Paramount. So by this time, uh, Curtis was working under people like Jerry Wald, who basically let him shoot the picture. And Jack Warner at that time had become 
somewhat more distractive and more expansive and would let Curtis do pretty much whatever he wanted to so long as the budget and the schedule weren't exceeded by a great amount. So uh, he, Curtis, in 1945, had a great deal more freedom, and I think he was probably easier to get along with at that point. And another very significant noir film that Curtis did around that time was a couple years later, The Unsuspected. And a significant fact about this production was it was his first time ever since he came to Hollywood for Curtis that he produced a film as well as directed it. Yes, uh, Curtis for uh, more than a few years lobbied Jack Warner about setting up his own production company on the Warner Brothers lot. And that finally happened in late 1946. And he ended up hiring Bess Meredith and his stepson, John Meredith Lucas. However, uh, Curtis was not a businessman by any stretch of the imagination. And his production company was, was had a very short life due to not only his uh, mismanagement of, of production and fiscal issues, uh, but the fact of the timing, the post-World War II uh, box office slump, the advent of television, the antitrust lawsuit that the government launched against the studios that forced them to divest of their theaters and so forth. And then, of course, the blacklist that was very destructive in terms of the talent that the studios uh, made themselves, that were available to the studios. So uh, from a timing point of view, it was a terrible time to set up an independent production company. But nonetheless, Curtis did make some, some very distinguished films. The Unsuspected was the first one. And that one is really a visual film noir feast for the eyes. He hired uh, Woody Bradell, who had worked at Universal and had shot such pictures as Phantom Lady and The Killers. And he and Bradell really turned the unsuspected into something that's very, very, very special visually. And the plot of the film involves Claude Rains as a famous radio producer who's also involved in murder and and all kinds of chicanery and it really gives the the unsuspected really gives you an interesting picture of the influence of radio before television came in and and how important that was to american pop culture it has a an excellent cast of supporting actors also um audrey totter who was wonderful and uh constance bennett in particular is my favorite in that movie she didn't really do any other film noirs i don't think at that time she was doing more theater and radio than television um of course her younger sister joan bennett was one of the great performers of film noir um but it would have been nice if constance bennett could have done more she was terrific yeah she was great she was kind of uh, her character in that was kind of an ersatz eve arden to an extent and she really really uh, did it well. Of course, Audrey Totter, uh, he ended up borrowing from MGM. And as Audrey uh, told Eddie Muller when Eddie was writing Dark City Dames, Curtis actually wanted to put her under contract to his production company, but that couldn't work out because MGM uh, had contractual dibs on her. But few people could play a bad girl better than Audrey. Uh, another Curtis discovery that he found on stage in, in Laguna Beach was the character actor Fred Clark, who made his film debut as a detective in The Unsuspected and went on to a very uh, notable career in Hollywood, either as a, uh, as a heavy or as a comedic actor and so forth. And Curtis spotted Clark in a Laguna Theater production and went backstage and said, 
hey, have you signed with any studios yet? And he said, no. And he said, good, don't. I want to sign you. And he did. So Clark started his career uh, in Curtiz's production company, as did Doris Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another one of his great discoveries. Um, as you yeah. mentioned, the, the visual style in uh, The Unsuspect is terrific. And um, as you wrote in the book, it's kind of a precursor to the great Anthony Mann-John Alton collaborations uh, from the late 40s. And I wanted to mention just here that several of those have come out or are about to come out on these great new DVD and Blu-ray releases from classic flicks. There have already been T-Men and He Walked By Night have already been released. And then next month in January, there's going to be Raw Deal. And you worked on these releases. You uh, produced the special features for them. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I formed uh, a partnership uh, with uh, Stephen Smith and Patrick Francis, who were two legitimate filmmakers. <laughs> and uh, we ended up producing, making the featurettes for all three of these restored Blu-rays, in addition to overseeing the commentary tracks. I believe I did the commentary for T-Men, and then I did for He Walked By Night, with uh, the great Julie Kurgo, which is a lot of fun to have someone you're simpatico with talking back and forth on a commentary track. And then uh, my colleague Jeremy Arnold did the one for Raw Deal that will be coming out in February. But we had a lot of fun uh, producing and making these things and editing, and uh, it was very, very successful. And the I'd add that the restored versions of T-Man and He Walked By Night is better than anything out there on the market. So uh, for, those, for those noir aficionados that love those films, as so many of us do, uh, these are absolutely the best ones out there, and I, uh, I heartily recommend their purchase. Another significant pair of movies we want to talk about now, one of them is from the earlier 40s, from before this noir period, uh, The Sea Wolf, a great film with Edward G. Robinson and John Garfield and Ida Lupino, uh, adapted from a Jack London novel. And it may not be exactly film noir, but the cast is such a band of cutthroats and ne'er-do-wells that it rivals <laughs> any film noir ensemble, so I think any noir fans will love it. And a significant fact about this film is that it has just recently been restored by Warner Brothers to its original length, which was unavailable for many decades. And Alan, you hosted a screening of that restoration, the first screening of it, just a couple of nights ago as we record this at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. So tell us about that. Yes, I did, and it was a lot of fun. I, uh, I signed my book, and uh, Warner Brothers was generous enough to uh, let us screen the restored digital version, the DCP of the Seawolf, and that was backed up by the second feature, The Breaking Point, which we'll, we'll get to in a little while. But the Seawolf has this interesting history. It was made in November of 1940, and it was adapted by, uh, from Jack London's uh, bestseller that was published back in 1904. And there's been many, many versions of, of the Seawolf put, uh, put on the screen and on television and so forth. But this is definitely the best. And uh, it, it, the timing of it with the specter of Nazism and war in Europe going on at that time 
the screenwriter Robert Rawson, who uh, was a native uh, communist and who would later be blacklisted and name names, he turned out to be one of the great Hollywood screenwriters and was very socially conscious. So it really turned Wolf Larsen into kind of a treatise on uh, Nazism and totalitarianism, fascism, and so forth. And Edward G. Robinson, who was a leading member of Hollywood's anti-Nazi, the Anti-Nazi League at that time, really sank his teeth into the role of Wolf Larsen and takes it over the top. And the film was shot, even though most of it was at sea, on uh, the, the ship The Ghost, and most of the action takes place. It was all filmed in Stage 21 at Warner Brothers, which had this huge stage with ship models that could be hydraulically moved and a cyclorama of the horizon, a wave machine. You could fill the stage partially with water and so forth. Uh, so it was it was kind of ho- uh, the uh, the ape- apex of Hollywood technology at that time. Now, what happened with the film was that Jack Warner in 1947. Uh, he, Jack pioneered the re-release of previous pictures to get more money and to wring the value out. And what he did in '47 is he took the Sea Wolf and the Seahawk and cut uh, time out of each of them to fit them on a double bill and re-released them. Well, we did that with the Seahawk. He cut about 20 minutes out of it, but that footage was recovered and restored some time ago. Uh, the Sea Wolf, the footage they took 14 minutes out. Uh, uh, 14 or 15 minutes out, and that footage was misplaced, and they never found it. And what they did is they actually cut the negative, which was not, uh, you know, which, you know, as a as a film preservationist, you know, my toenails curl about, let's take the original negative and cut it. But they, uh, unfortunately, that was a common thing in those days. So the footage was missing for, you know, 70 years, and George Feltenstein at the Warner Archive Collection, one of my heroes, uh, did not want to release the film using 16-millimeter footage from uh, the only other print that was intact, which was from John Garfield's personal collection. And then, as it turned out, the Museum of Modern Art had a master posit, which is the second generation from the camera negative, and they had that on hand, and apparently MoMA had either restored it or had it for some period of time. Uh, it had been overlooked. Warner Brothers got it and put together this digital restoration. And seeing this film on the big screen at the Egyptian Theater uh, two nights ago was just uh, unbelievable. It was, it was a classic, and it looks beautiful, looks sharp. And Warner, has this, Warner Archive Collection has this out on Blu-ray, so I encourage everyone... Uh, that's a film lover to take a look at it because it's uh, it's a terrific film and now with it restored the picture makes a lot more sense it is a great release and um, as you mentioned it came from that other source so you really can't tell watching the blu-ray or the dvd of which scenes came from which source or it all looks the same it all looks beautiful no it's all it's all blended together perfectly and and the the missing parts, which uh, I think a lot of them were some of the speeches between um, Edward G. Robinson and Alexander Knox, who plays Humphrey Van Wyden, and also some of the context on uh, Edward G. Robinson's brother and so forth, really puts the entire theme and plot of the film into a much better context than it was previously with the missing footage. So it's it's really a win-win for film fans everywhere, courtesy of Warner Brothers. 
the fun detail about the production of this movie that you wrote about that I really enjoyed was Curtiz with actors, a lot of times he had trouble pronouncing their names. So with Ida Lupino, he came up with Lupe, and he just called her Lupe. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. know if any yeah. other he, director he, ever called her Lupe, but he sure did. <laughs> yeah, Lupe, and he called Elvis Presley on King Creole Elvie, <laughs> and he called Bing Crosby on White Christmas Binky. <laughs> so, you know, he would... Curtis would invent these names for people that was uh, easier easier for him to remember apparently and easier on their pronunciation. But uh, yeah, and at the end of uh, the Sea Wolf, apparently uh, at the rap party or the last scene, the crew and the cast picked up Curtis and threw him into the uh, the tank on stage twenty one. I think there was a little score settling involved with that. But uh, as Garfield said. Uh, or Lupino said he would explain a scene endlessly and go on and on and on. And then when he was done, Garfield leaned over to Lupino and said, I'm not sure what he said, but I think it makes sense. (laughs) So let's move on now to one of the greatest classics of Curtiz's career and one of his most overlooked movies, which hopefully now will start to be much less overlooked, which is The Breaking Point great classic from 1950 um, a version of Ernest Hemingway's book To Have and Have Not, which had been previously adapted of course with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, but in a way that really wasn't similar to the book at all, and then was remade some years mm-hmm. later. And um, as you talk about in your chapter on it with John Garfield who was the leading man in that, and who had worked with Curtis before in The Sea Wolf, as we just mentioned, and also in Four Daughters, the big success from the late 30s, which was Garfield's debut in Hollywood. Um, Garfield, it struck me reading your description of this film that he had some similarities in terms of his approach to movies that was kind of similar to Cagney in terms of he was very active in looking at the story and trying to come up with ways to improve the story or figure out ways that the characters could really support the story. And his acting style was very physical, always moving around, always doing things. And that was reminiscent of that as well, of the approach that Cagney took. And that seemed to fit with Curtiz's approach very precisely. And that seems to be, to me, that seems to be one of the reasons why they work together so well. Well, I think, yeah, uh, Curtiz really discovered Garfield. He saw him either in a uh, MGM screen test. Uh, Garfield signed a contract with Warner Brothers back in, I think, 37 or 38, and Curtiz was the one that put him into Four Daughters, which became a huge hit in 1938, uh, nominated for Best Picture, Curtiz nominated for Best Director, and Garfield nominated for Best Supporting Actor in his film debut. So there's always a closeness between the two of them, and they were both, uh, both Jewish, shared a Jewish heritage, shared an urban environment, and both, you know, Garfield, before there was James Dean and Marlon Brando, there was John Garfield, and he had this very, as you pointed out, naturalistic style to his acting, but he took his craft very seriously, and he looked at things, how does it better the movie, and so on and so forth. And so Curtiz and Garfield got along quite a bit, and Garfield fulfilled his seven-year contract at Warner Brothers, left the studio, and founded his own production company with Enterprise Production with a fellow named Bob Roberts, uh, they made Body and Soul, which was a huge hit, one of Garfield's signature films. And then Force of Evil, uh, which holds up extremely well and is a terrific film 
uh, big influence on contemporary filmmakers such as uh, Martin Scorsese. At the time, though, it was a box office dud, and Enterprise Productions started circling the drain. Uh, the specter of the blacklist started uh, rising. So Garfield needed to keep making movies. Uh, he signed a two-picture deal with Jack Warner in 1949, and the first movie uh, of that contract was The Breaking Point. And uh, Garfield himself called it uh, his best film. Uh, I think it was. it is a great film, as you pointed out. Uh, the locale uh, from Hemingway's novel is shifted from Cuba to Newport Beach. Uh, Garfield is a disaffected uh, World War II veteran who served with honor and got a medal, and now he's struggling to support uh, his wife and uh, his children, and he makes a whole lot of decisions, all of them bad. He's also being tempted by Patricia Neal uh, and so forth, and it it's kind of outlines this classic post-war noir dilemma that so many protagonists uh, uh, face in, in many of these film noir movies that we all savor, but I don't think it was ever done any better than Curtiz. And in addition, uh, the assistant director was his brother, David Curtiz, who is billed in the credits as David Gardner. Uh, and Curtiz had brought David over, gotten him out of Hungary, had him with his other brother in Mexico for some time before he was able to get him into the country. And David worked as Warner Brothers first as a cutter and then as an AD. And at some point, there was a decision made to put Gardner as his surname instead of Curtiz, either because Jack Warner only liked nepotism in his own family or Curtiz. Uh, uh, they they wanted to dissociate him from Curtiz uh, for some reason. But uh, the Breaking Point was really a Curtiz and Curtiz uh, project uh, that Jerry Wald produced and so forth. So. Uh, it's truly a timeless, great film, and the backstory on it uh, is really tragic because what happened was, is as the film was in post-production, and there's a memo from Jack Warner saying, I think this is an important film on, on the level of Casablanca, uh, this document called Red Channels that was published by a couple F, uh, FBI agents and right-wingers came out, and featured Garfield prominently and listed all these people and the supposed subversive causes they donated to. So subsequently, Jack Warner, who had made an ass out of himself in his 1947 testimony to the House of Un-American Activities Committee and was very cowed like the rest of the studio heads by the politicians in Washington doing all this red hunting, he canceled Garfield's contract for the second film and ended up releasing the breaking point, scaled back the publicity and everything. So it came out, got great reviews, very little publicity, and then after its first run, it just disappeared uh, entirely. Uh, Warner went ahead and um, uh, decided to make a documentary called I Was a Communist for the FBI to keep his anti-red bona fides intact. And Garfield's career was essentially ended with that and he made one more movie they ran all the way and uh died of a heart attack at the age of uh, 39 in 1952 and certainly the trauma of the blacklist ruining his career because he would not roll over and name names uh put him under undue pressure and and led to his led to his premature demise so it was really a tragic story 
particularly for John Garfield and for the movie. But uh, the movie has been discovered by a number of people. The Film Foundation several years ago did a 35-millimeter uh, restoration with the UCLA Film and Television Archive, and it was very recently released on Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection, and I was privileged to uh, contribute one of the uh, special featurettes about Curtiz, uh on that disc. So people are rediscovering The Breaking Point as the great, great film uh, that it is. Once everything went just the way I wanted it. I couldn't make a mistake. I was like that. I was eight feet tall all the time. Not anymore. You're in trouble? Up to my eyes, I'm in trouble. Whatever it is, let it go. I got no choice. All I got left to peddle is guts. I'm not sure I got any. I have to find out. So let's talk now briefly about Curtiz's late career period, which really stems from when he left Warner Brothers in the early 1950s, after having been with Warners for his entire career, ever since he came to Hollywood. So he had some successes. He, as you mentioned, he directed White Christmas, which was a huge box office hit and a holiday favorite now. And um, One Last Noir, an interesting movie, you talk about The Scarlet Hour, which is very hard to see, but will hopefully resurface at some point. Um, and uh, a really nice Western he did was The Proud Rebel with Alan Ladd and Olivia de Havilland. And you've spoken to Alan Ladd's son, David Ladd, who played his young son in that film, which is a really interesting one. Right, yeah. His uh, Curtis post-Warner Brothers career uh, began in 1954, and it, it wasn't nearly as distinguished. First off, he was, he was older. Uh, he would get sick with cancer uh, uh, in several years. Uh, he had, I think he had trouble adapting to CinemaScope, and that whole uh, teamwork of crew and studio and everything that he had developed through, you know, over a quarter century with Warner Brothers, that kind of went away, and he was more or less on his own as, a, as an older guy and a changing Hollywood. And I think truly he struggled with that. He did make some significant films. His last film, War The Scarlet Hour, Hopefully Paramount someday will retrieve that uh, from their vault and make it available for uh, everyone to see. Uh, certainly The Proud Rebel is a very, very excellent uh, family film. And then he made uh, what I consider to be Elvis Presley's best film, King Creole. But many of his films in the later part of his life were undistinguished. And his last film, The Comancheros, he had to be literally carried off the location in Moab, Utah, uh, because he had terminal cancer. So he really went out on his shield, and uh, John Wayne uh, ended up directing the balance of that picture. But that was his last picture in 1961, and he died early in 1962 in Hollywood. And we can go ahead and wrap up with a topic that you cover, I think, in very interesting detail in the prologue of your book, which is despite the fact that Curtiz had so much success during his career with box office, with critics, with awards, and his reputation within the industry was very high. Uh, he was considered always one of the best directors in Hollywood. But ever since he passed away, he really hasn't been, for the most part, one of those household names that's up there with the other top directors when people get into classic movies that they start hearing about. So you talked about in your book why you think that is. So um, what are some of the reasons you think that that's happened with him? Well, I think everything is timing uh, uh, in a lot of cases. When he arrived at Warner Brothers in 1926, 
it was the perfect time for Warner Brothers was the perfect studio for someone like him to arrive from Europe and start their career. Unfortunately, when he passed away, he passed away in 1962, and this was before the the renaissance of appreciation of golden age directors such as Raoul Walsh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Wellman, Frank Capra, and people like Peter Bogdanovich and Richard Schickel, uh, the interviews on college campuses. So he passed away before all of that. In addition, uh, because he made so many different movies and so many different genres, he was not one of the favorites of the auteur school. Uh, Andrew Saris, in his landmark book about American directors, is very dismissive to critiques and, and ascribes Casablanca as like this inexplicable happy accident uh, in his career. And so he didn't fit into this auteurism theory of, of a John Ford or a Capra. So I think because of his exit from the scene in 1962 and because of the, the kind of slavishness of the auteurists, uh, he, he's, been, he's been historically diminished. So I, I think it's really a striking paradox that we have a director here uh, over 50 years since he died and yet several of his films, Casablanca, Yankee Doodle Dandy, uh, Mildred Pierce, White Christmas, are continue to be venerated uh, seasonally, <laughs> in the case of some of them, uh, Yuletide and July 4th, and yet the director himself remains somewhat anonymous. And so uh, I think certainly that's unfair and unjust, and if my book does anything else, I hope it does raise the profile of Michael Curtiz because he certainly was one of the great American film directors of the 20th century. No question about that. And anyone who dips into his filmography and starts watching the movies, um, I think will certainly realize that. And you also start realizing some of the signature features of his directing, as you discuss in your book, just the physical energy that he brought to how he used the camera, the movements and moving the actors within the frame and just always bringing a real vitality to whatever story he was telling. Yes, his, he, he imbued his vitality. I mean, where the camera kind of comprised his auteur, John Hancock, if you will, his vitality and his energy is imbued in so many of his Warner Brothers films that move with quick cuts and dissolves and how the camera moves and so forth. So I think he did have a distinctive style, uh, although that style went from genre to genre. I, I think it's a specious exercise to try and get into turning critiques into some sort of auteurist. I think it's equally uh, uh, ridiculous to unilaterally apply the auteur theory to films that were made in Hollywood during the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s, in some cases. I mean, it seems to me that people forget that uh, Daryl Zanuck cut all of John Ford's films at Fox. So, uh, uh, you know, movie-making then and now is a contributive art, and where directors absolutely have a certain style i think the auteur theory gets very overstated at times and exaggerated <laughs> just my two cents <laughs> <laughs> okay so i think we'll leave things there so uh alan k Rody, thanks again for joining us to talk about your new book uh, michael curtiz a life in film
Hey, Guy, always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks again to Alan K. Rohde for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up on their email list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media, at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr, and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, please rate and review our show on iTunes, or you can contact us via email at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back next month with another episode, and until then, thanks for joining us here at Noir Talk. Crawl